much of the world in lockdown, many of us are spending more time than ever using social media. But how much misinformation about COVID-19 is out there? And should the law be doing more about it? Also, how is the move to online platforms affecting university-level teaching? We've got it covered on the Media Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. It's mid-April 2020. We're in lockdown because of the coronavirus and many of us have turned to social media, even more than usual, for entertainment, for communication with friends and family, and perhaps most significantly for information. Increasingly, we see social media as a source of news. But social media is not just a source of information. It is also a hotbed of misinformation, which raises questions about the responsibility that social media platforms have and should have for regulating the content shared upon them, and also about government's role in responding to this. Joining me to discuss the role of social media during the pandemic are two people who regular listeners will remember familiar podcasts, but it's nice to have them on together this time. We have Peter Coe from the University of Reading. Hi, Pete. Hi, Tom. And my colleague at City University of London, Holly Powell-Jones. Hi, Holly. Hi, good morning. So lovely to have you both on. Um, Pete, if I could start with you, because you've written recently on the Inform blog, I saw your post, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly of Social Media During the Pandemic, um, where you look at the role that social media has played, the positives, the negatives, the challenges. Could you talk us briefly through what you found looking at the the use of social media during this outbreak of of COVID-19? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think to start off with, social media has been used for a huge amount of, of good uh, you know, since since the um, since the virus kind of hit, and since we've been locked down, um, it's undoubtedly brought communities closer together. It's enabled people to stay in touch. Uh, I mean, I for one know that I personally am probably talking to more people than I ever did, uh, friends, families, colleagues, by using various different forms of social media. It's enabled businesses to stay relevant, to, to, to even stay open and keep operating, but certainly to stay relevant to their customers and to their clients. Um, you, you know, you've got lots of small businesses that are still offering online services and have been, been able to diversify their business because of social social media. Um, it's enabled people to carry on learning um, and also to access information and to stay in touch with what's going on. Uh, it's also enabled the government and the police and other agencies to disseminate very valuable information to us on the pandemic, on the, on the virus itself, and, and on what's expected of us as citizens. Um, but of course, it's also been, been used for the not so good things. As you've said, as you touched on in your introduction, um, It's been a hotbed and a source of misinformation since the very start of this pandemic. Um, So just just, just by way of example, um, I I saw before I came on to talk to you both, um, but there's been, there was some research done recently, and it's been estimated that approximately a third of social media users in the UK 
as well as the United States, Argentina, South Korea, Germany and Spain have reported seeing false or misleading information about the virus at some point since the pandemic started. And in a recent BBC report, this was this was a, a couple of days ago, the BBC reported that um, there are estimates that in the first week of the lockdown, 46% of internet using adults in the UK saw false or misleading information about the virus. And according to Ofcom, this figure rose to 58% amongst younger people, amongst 18 to 24 year olds. Um, and of course, what this has done, what this misinformation has done is it's fueled fear and also irresponsible behavior, such as seeing the panic buying of toilet roll and other essentials. Um, and has even led to things like um, quite, quite concerning things like certain ethnic groups being blamed for the spread of the disease. So it's had quite serious repercussions. So although it's been used for some real good, there's obviously also been the bad stuff that's come from social media as well. Now, Holly, you've got particular expertise when it comes to young people and their interactions with social media. From your perspective, you know, what's been the good and what's been the bad for, for, for young users of social media? One thing that I'm really eager to point out at this stage, and you'll be aware of this as researchers, is that the data that we have shows how many people are seeing um, content that is false or potentially harmful or misleading. And it's very, very difficult as us, uh, for us as sociologists to make direct causal links between how many of those people are seeing that content and how many people are then um, taking kind of action or behavioural changes that are harmful. And, and that is difficult. So while I appreciate there is concern about younger users um, being exposed to a lot of misinformation, I think it's important to remember that young people um, can be quite sophisticated consumers of media as well. They've grown up in a media-saturated society and environment um, and actually, I've seen different studies that show that um, misinformation, disinformation and, and, and fake news, as it's sometimes termed, is actually more likely to be shared and forwarded online by the over 50s rather than that younger group. So I think we need to just be a bit cautious when we're thinking about things like age, um, remembering that younger people uh, and people of all ages might be exposed to certain information. I've seen information and come across information that's been false. Um, and I think the point is to remember um, seeing the information is one thing, but it's how we act on it that's really, really important. So making sure that individuals know how to how to check that information, how to report it, flag it, remove it, counter it in a way that's productive. Um, because those those it's really what you do with that information that is the most important, I think. Hmm. Pete, you've looked at some of the, the, the information that's been spread around, the misinformation that's been spread around. What sort of impact do you think it's it's having? I mean, there's a difficulty, obviously, in, in working out the causal link, if any, between seeing inaccurate information and acting upon it. Um, what have you found? I think uh, it's a very good question. I think Holly made a very, very good point. I think at the moment, it's, at, it's probably very difficult to know what that impact will be, other than the fact that we've 
we've we've seen certain examples, I suppose, of of the impact in the sense that we've seen people who have you know, panicked panicked for certain essentials or toilet roll. Um, there was information or misinformation on the on certain remedies uh, that would apparently um, help you to overcome the virus if you if you contracted it, which were completely false. But people were obviously acting on that. Um, so just you know just just by, by way of example for instance um, the uh, one, one of the one of the, uh, the, the the big issues at the start of this was obviously the stockpiling of stockpiling of food stockpiling of essentials and we saw supermarkets which were literally inundated with people they ran out of food and of course that then creates further panic and further stockpiling further panic buying um, and a lot of that just came from the fact that we had, this misinformation that was spread by people. It only took, you know, a few people potentially to take pictures of empty shelves in a super in a supermarket. That then goes goes viral on social media. If the mainstream media then pick that up and start to publish and report on that, of course, what we then have is this kind of spiral of fear, as it's been called, where this this panic just escalates because it's been reinforced by the mainstream media. So something actually which was a relatively relatively simple issue to overcome in the sense that actually we had enough food to go around um, as we've now seen because of the measures that have been put in place there's plenty of food for everybody there's plenty of essentials for everybody it just needs to be managed in the right way but because of the way it was reported initially that created the panic that created the fear and then of course we had this this issue with stockpiling and we had this issue with with with, with food running out or the or the perception that food was running out um, so I think that's the kind of the short term impact. Longer term, though, as Holly said, I don't think we're going to know probably until long after this, this has all kind of calmed down and we can really assess the impact this has had on people. Um, but I also agree with what Holly said about younger people uh, and the fact that they are, they do tend to be, and this is only from my own experience of working obviously with young people as a university lecturer, they do tend to be very media savvy. And, you know, I'm not a sociologist. Um, I've never done any research into this, but I would, uh, my view is that I think it's more likely that actually the younger people are probably on the whole, not all the time, but on the whole, more likely to, to go through the, 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 the kind of the fact checking exercises um, and to be more aware of fake news or misinformation or disinformation than perhaps older people are. And that's something that we do need to be aware of. So one of the things that I wanted to pick you up on there, um, and, and maybe Holly can come in on this, is the mainstream media's use of social media as a source of news. Um, now, this is something that I've uh, I've heard discussed in a number of other uh, podcasts. It's a matter of some political significance at the moment. The extent to which the mainstream news media is, rather than conducting expensive investigative journalism of its own, instead simply sourcing material from other from other sources. Uh, from other organizations, from other platforms in which uh, it's already appeared, whether that's through the increased use of uh, newspaper headline reviews as key segments in mainstream news shows, which has really increased in the last few years, or as we're seeing particularly 
um, at the moment when there's less scope for getting out and about and doing investigative journalism, um, the use of social media posts as a source of, uh, of, of information. Is there uh, any ethical concern about this from a, a journalist's point of view? Um, I guess that's the question for, for Holly uh, uh, and for Pete in a few minutes' time, maybe. Um, should there be any legal requirements on um, mainstream media outlets to source their own information? Yeah, well, absolutely, I'll comment on that. I do uh, media law and ethics training for uh, journalists, but I also do media law and ethics training for uh, kind of content producers online, so podcasters, bloggers, um, and just ordinary social media users. And I think this is a really good example of demonstrating how the skills and training and knowledge and awareness and the, the kind of the tools that journalists and media professionals um, would always consider essential are to an extent essential to all of us who are producing and sharing content online now um, and you're right to bring up you know money and the cost you know resources money there's also time pressure on a lot of journalists you know people might be working individually rather than in a team they may not have had adequate training etc um so all these issues are a bit of a perfect storm really for creating what we've now got where um people are uh, you know are finding information on social media and using that to generate a news story or a discussion or content um i would say you know i think Although Ofcom regulation applies to broadcasting and it doesn't apply in the same way to social media, I think thinking about the Ofcom broadcasting code and particularly the aspects on fairness and accuracy, you know, should be applied in a similar way, you know, from a psychological perspective anyway, to anyone sharing content anywhere. Um, but I think for journalists, you know, the temptation is to, to go fast uh, and get out there and hack the attention economy. But I think what we really need right now, and from an ethical perspective, I would say, is go slow, fact check and be right. Um, I think there's also a bit of a game of catch up where a lot of journalists are almost having to respond and react, just countering fake information that's doing the rounds on social media. Do you know what I mean? So they almost don't have time necessarily to to get ahead of the curve. And but, you know, there are there are um, things being done by mainstream media. You know, we've seen the Ofcom uh, kind of investigating the Good Morning segment recently, haven't we, where there was a discussion kind of of some of the conspiracy theories around coronavirus um, and the way that that was handled, um, you know, by the presenters was, was criticised um, because of the way that it sort of relied on um, repeating and exploring myths rather than necessarily proactively challenging them and countering them um, and like you say I think that's issue issues to do with resources issues to do with training um, and making sure that that ethical and regulatory and legal framework um, is applied quite rigorously you know particularly during these times of a health pandemic. One of the things that I've seen on social media when you mention the conspiracy theories there uh, Holly is a kind of generic post suggesting that um, the f mainstream media refusing to cover these conspiracy theories amounts to a restriction on free speech. 
Um, and it's a kind of mad invocation of free speech as if free speech guaranteed anybody the right to say anything, no matter how harmful it was. Um, exactly, exactly. And I think that the question is here is actually, it's not about freedom. It's about no freedom without responsibility. Okay. If you've got a platform and you've got an audience um, that you can reach very quickly and very easily, there is a responsibility that comes with that speech to make sure that you are not, you know, perpetuating myths, causing harm, I would say. Yes. Um, a, a, a scholar once put it to me uh, that free speech is the right to say whatever you like and not be put in prison for it. Um, but it's not the right to say something and have no consequences whatsoever. And it's certainly not the, pla- the right to demand a platform to spread whatever information or misinformation you choose. Exactly. Um, and I would say as well, I do understand as a sociologist I do understand why there is mistrust and distrust amongst certain groups of people and certain parts of the population for the government and the, and the media and the press to be telling them the truth I think these kinds of conspiracy theories and this misinformation that's spreading has almost been supercharged by the lack of trust in authority that we see in the media a lack of trust of journalists, a lack of trust of governments and authority figures, which we have seen being whipped up and stoked up kind of over the over the past few years, you know, to the extent that, yeah, I can understand why some groups of people think that there is a conspiracy and that the media and the government are not telling us the truth. So I think there's a broader question there about us really interrogating why there is such a lack of trust in these authority figures that we really need to be listening to right now. Yeah, so I've got there's a, there's a few points I'd like to make about what what Holly said, and and I, I agree with what with what Holly said as well. Um, she made some excellent points. I think the you know part of the problem we've got here is this requirement now is almost a requirement for the mainstream media to continue to produce news twenty four hours a day. There's this pressure for them to to produce this kind of rolling rolling news and that really hasn't helped this situation they don't have the luxury of time when it comes to source and fact checking at the best of times let alone during a rapidly evolving international crisis they're having to make decisions almost constantly on whether to publish or broadcast certain information coming from a huge variety of sources on a topic which you know, most of us know very little, if anything, really about. We're not scientists. We're not, doc- most of us aren't scientists or doctors. It's quite an esoteric subject. Um, and I think that's, that is part of the problem. It goes back to what Holly was saying about not necessarily having the training, not having the time or the resources to do the background checks properly before this information is then published by the, by the mainstream media. Um, you know, and, and just by way of example, uh, and, and I wrote about this in the Inform post that was, that was published a couple of weeks ago. In, in January 2020, um, the Washington Times incorrectly reported that coronavirus may have originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology as part of a covert weapon, uh, biological weapons program. Now, that article then went on and sparked these conspiracy theories about the spread of the disease. Um, 
around the world and further information, uh, further misinformation on the virus's origins. And this, 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 this went viral, this went all around the world, and that was actually repeated by the Mail Online in the UK and was then published by the Daily Star, also in the UK. And the Daily Star later uh, amended that article because they realised that actually that, in, that was completely incorrect, that information was completely wrong. Now, what's happened as a result of a lot of the, these issues with, that, that journalists are facing with having to fact check this information that they're being given almost constantly and they're trying to get out there because that's their job. They're trying to report on this situation as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So in April, 20, in April this year, Google announced £5.2 million worth of grants to support fact checking groups and non-profits across the world battling misinformation on coronavirus and a proportion of that money will go towards uh, the UK fact-checking uh, charity called Full Fact and also an independent body called First Draft and these organisations offer guidance to journalists on verifying content on social media. So, you know, they, 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 so some of the issues that Holly was talking about, they are clearly looking at ways to deal with that and actually help journalists to provide a better service, I guess, and to do their job um, and, and to enable them to do their jobs under the circumstances that they're, that they're currently in at the moment. Um, but I mean, talking about the kind of legalities of it all, I mean, we've seen we've seen in other countries, other countries are dealing with the dealing with misinformation on social media um, uh, in a way which we haven't seen in the UK yet. So, for example. Um, Dario Milo and, and Johan Thiel wrote a post on Inform a couple of weeks ago looking at the law in South Africa. And South Africa has published emergency regulations to, to criminalise misinformation that's being published on social media. Um, and also, you know, in, in this country, we've had people such as Damien Collins, who's an MP, who suggested the same thing essentially should happen. Uh, and that we should introduce laws to criminalise the spread of, of, of misinformation on social media. And he said that at the very least, social media platforms should take action against the administrators of groups that contain posts that are either false news or mis misleading um, in order to kind of deal with these issues at the, at the, at the start. They don't, they don't end up um, being um, distributed more widely uh, using the mainstream media. So there are kind of calls in place, at least, for these sort of things to happen, but whether or not they will in the UK, I, I don't know. I'm interested in this thought about criminalising inaccurate information. Um, and so I guess the question becomes, is it a restriction on free speech if you are potentially looking at criminal sanctions, even if what you're spreading is complete rubbish? And um, how on earth does any legal regime purport to determine ex post facto the facts of the matter, the truth, whether the information was, was true or false? Does the criminal sanction apply to the person who creates the false post? Does it apply to the platform that hosts it or to the users that share it? 
there were a lot of questions surrounding this. There I've are an awful that. lot of questions. Sorry, Holly, I didn't mean to jump in. Sorry. No, you go for it. You go for it. I'll step in after no, so you. There, there are, I think you're absolutely right, Tom. There are an awful lot of questions. And I think practically it, it will be very, very difficult because of the way that social media and online speech operates. And to, you know, you've even got a factor in things like anonymity as well to that, which, of course, makes it even more difficult. Um, but I think one of the other big issues you've got here, and going back to the point you just made, Tom, is actually how we interpret the information. So just just, just by way of example, um, there was a tweet which was put out by the Daily Mirror on the 2nd of, of April, and some of you may, have, you may have seen this. And the Daily Mirror tweeted on the 2nd of April, the, the tweet said this, UK's deadliest day set to be Easter Sunday when government fear 50,000 will die. That was the tweet. So the implication of that tweet is, is that, if, if you, depending on how you read it and interpret it, is that 50,000 people could die as a result of Easter Sunday, in addition to those that have already died as a result of the virus. If you then went and read the article itself, the headline actually said, coronavirus could kill 50,000 in the UK with Easter Sunday to be the deadliest day. The article itself then gives even more context information and that goes on to say that, and I'm quoting this from the article, a worst case scenario for Britain would see a coronavirus death toll of 50,000 for the entire pandemic if people ignore the lockdown and social distancing laws, while a so-called best case scenario would be 20,000 deaths. And that, as it stands, the UK is not on course for a death toll of, of that scale, the scale of 50,000. So actually... One of the big issues is, I think, in terms of the legalities around it, and also the ethics as well, is how the information is interpreted by different people and the arguments that will be raised by the publishers in relation to those interpretations. Now, I think my own view is that the Daily Mirror's reporting of this particular piece was unethical and, and, and wrong, um, but that's my own view on it because actually the tweet didn't reflect the information in the article at all. And it's those sort of tweets that stoke fear in people and I think irresponsible behaviour. Um, but, you know, whether or not that's illegal is something entirely different. I have very strong feelings about this because I, my research was investigating the risks that young people uh, thought were around social media and sharing content. And I can tell you categorically that the main finding from my research was that, um, that people are not aware of what is already a crime on social media. Um, I'm thinking about some of the, the criminal kind of um, legislation we've got already that can be applied to social media. You know, we've got uh, things like, you know, stuff that's likely to incite racial hatred, for example, you know, um, sharing sharing that or distributing that or material that's likely to glorify terrorism, for example. So we have we have lots of legislation. We've even got things like um, strict liability offences like contempt of court, you know, breaching court reporting restrictions or um, breaching anonymity for sexual offences claimants. And um, I think it's it, it, the problem is people don't already know about um, or, or adhere to social media criminal laws already that we have in place. So um, I don't think that necessarily criminalising something is 
always a great uh, idea when you want to change people's behaviors. I think my research has shown that a lot of behaviors, what, what matters more is how socially and culturally normal those behaviors are. So basically what your friends and your family are doing. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want to see um, a situation where we are um, punishing people on a criminal level for things they may not um, know are illegal. And secondly, as well, I mean, the problem we've already got with social media criminal offences is enforcement. The question is always enforcement here. Whose responsibility is it really to, even if we did make it a criminal offence, enforce this kind of thing? You know, we've already heard about and seen police, for example, and the CPS having to prioritise and deprioritise certain offences because of their uh, lack of resources. So, I think this is would would be adding more confusion and more problems, actually, rather than solving a problem, per se. Pete, on the role of government in all of this, um, to what extent has the government made a concerted effort to combat misinformation about coronavirus on social media? Um, what tools does it have at its disposal and should it be doing more? So in, uh, in, in March, actually, the UK government announced that it would create a counter disinformation unit to identify and respond to inaccurate or misleading stories and posts about the virus. Um, the Department for Culture, Media and, Media and Sports said that the aim of the unit was to provide a comprehensive picture on the potential extent, scope, and impact of disinformation, and uh, according to the, the the culture secretary Olivia, uh, uh, sorry, not Olivia, Oliver Dowden, the unit's work will include regular and robust engagement with social media companies, as they are well placed to monitor interference and limit the spread of disinformation. And the UK government has also agreed to fund the uh, the humanitarian to humanitarian network to tackle the global spread of coronavirus fake news. So they are putting things in place to help with this and to, to stop the spread. We've also obviously seen social media platforms themselves um, uh, put things in place to, to, to help stop the spread of, of fake news. So for example, uh, also in March, as a result of WhatsApp becoming known as a hub of disinformation on the pandemic, WhatsApp launched a, uh, a coronavirus chatbot in conjunction with the NHS to provide advice uh, to, to, to people and also to take the pressure off the NHS 111 service and to combat the, the spread of misinformation. Um, Sorry, Pete, just to um, clarify, can I just get you to clarify there? Yeah, of course. Just for anyone who's not familiar, uh, what is a chatbot? So a chatbot is um from what i understand as well so you can you will chat essentially to what seems like a, a person but it's actually a robot that is able to or, or a, it's an algorithm i assume um but you will chat you will be able to have an online chat through your computer your smartphone your tablet and that will be almost like talking to a person um and I'd imagine that there will be certain answers that that can give and certain answers that it can't give and will direct you, then it will signpost you to the services that you then require. So it's, a, it's from, from the way I understand it, I haven't used the service myself. I think it's the same sort of service as the 111 service. It's a signposting service. So you will log on, um, you'll talk to this chatbot, 
give them perhaps your symptoms. That will then go through a, a series of questions to determine where you need to be signposted to. So whether you stay at home and self-isolate, whether you need to speak to your GP, whether you need to go into the hospital, um, I would imagine it's it's that kind of process that you go through. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You'd be talking to a computer and with any luck, the computer will point you in the right direction. In the right direction, yeah. It's, it's not going to be a, it's not like having a conversation with a person, but the idea is, is that it's taking that pressure off the 111 service to signpost you to where you need to go without having to go through the NHS 111 service. Um, so we've all, but we've also seen other other social media platforms do, do similar things. So, um, for example, now in the UK, searches for coronavirus on Facebook and Twitter will bring up links to official NHS guidance. Um, and if you're on YouTube and you, you search for coronavirus, you'll be directed to the World Health Organization. Um, and, and also, as a result of a, of a very damning report, which was published very recently by Avaz into its handling of misinformation, Facebook users who have now read, watched or shared false coronavirus content will now receive a pop-up alert urging them to go to the World, World Health Organization's website. So we are seeing... Uh, as I said, um, you know, processes, procedures put in place both by the UK government, but also by social media platforms themselves to help to try to combat the spread of fake news and misinformation, disinformation. Fascinating. And particularly interesting that this is what it has taken. Uh, this, I mean, we, we have known for quite some time that social media is a hotbed of misinformation on a range of topics um and it's only when you have a global pandemic threatening the world's population that these social media companies really start to step up and try to counteract that misinformation absolutely i think it's it, it, there will be a lot of positives i think which will come from uh this pandemic um, in, in many different ways relating to different aspects of our lives. There will be a lot of good that comes from it. Um, and I think one of the positives will, will, will be the way that social media platforms have had to step up to deal with this issue, which was an issue that existed long before this pandemic. It's just been kind of amplified by it, I guess. Um, and they put in place the procedures which can then be used in future. Uh, and I hope it's you know it's made people more aware of the issues around fake news and and disinformation and misinformation on social media, and is and is almost helped to educate people, um, you, you know, on these on these these, these issues and, and that they do need to be careful with what they're what they're reading and what they're sharing. So uh, it's not just I think social media platforms that have that have had to step up. Probably us us as individuals have had to step up and take more responsibility. Uh, and be more aware of what we're doing and what we're sharing on social media. So I think that will be a positive that will come from this. I would add to that as well. I do, I do think that's a good point to make because I absolutely agree that social media companies and big tech need to take responsibility for harms that are perpetuated through their platforms. Absolutely. I would also say that, you know, there are there are behaviours of individual users and groups of users that are 
um, kind of exacerbating some of these problems as well. So um, you do need a kind of a media, digital media literacy angle on this, I think, at the same time um, in order to combat these things. Um, so I know, for example, that there's been a huge increase in the amount of online um, activity, work activity, learning activities, you name it, that's going on because we are all in lockdown. Um, and so there's pressure on individuals now to kind of do more content moderation. It's another reason why I'm a bit uncomfortable with the idea of kind of moderators on Facebook groups being sort of um, responsible for everything that everybody posts on their groups. If you've got a big group of, you know, 20,000 people, that's going to be an extremely difficult uh, job for somebody to do, probably on a voluntary and unpaid basis as well. Um, but I do think we could do a lot more to broadly spread awareness of, for example, being a good online community member. I mean, there's um, there's a company called Standing on Giants who's recently published uh, guides on being a what it means to not just be a good citizen, but to be a good online community member. And I think um, we're all having to get to grips with these platforms because this is where our life is happening. Holly, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of it comes down to education. Um, you know, you know, from a from a very young age for our children. I mean, I I've, I've talked about this for a long time, but I personally feel that you know, educating children on um, how to how to operate, you know, safely online, um, ethically, responsibly online, is as important as things in school. Like, as you know, sex education. I think it's something that needs to be built into our curriculum now from a very very young age for children, so they understand. You know how they should how they should operate online, but also I think it's important for, you know, for parents, for carers, for teachers, um, for older people. Because, like I say, you know, ch children uh, children nowadays are brought up in an online environment. They're brought up using um, smartphones and tablets and laptops almost from 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 day one. Um, we we weren't, you know, my my generation wasn't, and certainly even as you know, slightly younger generations weren't. So I think. I think a lot of it comes down to education. Um, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think we one of the things, as I said said earlier, we, we've kind of got from this is that we've had to take more responsibility. Um, we've had to step up. We've had to become more aware, and that's not a bad thing. Speaking of awareness, education, and so forth, um, we are of course academics, and I wonder if we could have just a few words. Uh, before we close the podcast, um, on how we found teaching during lockdown, because it's something each of us will have had to have done. Uh, we don't know how long we're going to be in lockdown. There's, of course, the possibility that we'll have to start the next academic year on an either exclusively online or significantly online basis. So uh, I just wondered if you, what thoughts you've had um, in terms of how you found moving to online teaching um, over the last few weeks. Holly, perhaps start with you. Absolutely. Well, I'm in the strange position as obviously I'm self-employed and I run online media law UK, but I also do university teaching as well. So I do um, a strange amount of different teaching, some of which is formal lecturing, some of which are short courses or masterclasses. And I'm also just as a freelancer running webinars and drop-in sessions as well. I've really struggled, actually, I'll be completely honest, um, even as a digital sociologist to get to grips with so just the range of different platforms 
forms um, that are out there. And it seems every single different client or different boss wants you to work on a different one. Um, but I think the most the most important thing uh, that I would say as sort of a piece of advice is just to just to check your settings. I think always make sure that you're checking uh, your kind of your privacy and security settings, all the usual advice, you know, have strong passwords, have different passwords for different platforms, etc. Um, and it is okay to keep learning as you go. I think there's a lot of pressure for us, particularly as academics, who can be a bit perfectionist, to want to research everything and skill up to the nth degree before we use something new. And actually, I think um, just doing your best uh, and learning as you go is the most important thing right now. We're all learning, we're all adapting, and that's what we need to do. Yes, I think one of the things that struck me about giving online tutorials um, through video conferencing apps and like yourself, I've used two or three different ones, uh, even just in the fortnight or so's worth of teaching that had to move on online. Um, you know, it struck me is the very different ways in which the students use the system on their end from the ones who see it as the opportunity to have a, a really closely interactive conversation with, with me and with their fellow students, to those who prefer uh, not to speak, not to have their webcam on, maybe to type something in a chat box, and a number that were sort of present in a, in a ghostly fashion, that the, they were logged in so far as I could see, but not interacting. Um, and that made it very different to teaching face to face in a physical classroom where I can call on students, where I can make sure that everyone understands where we are uh, and get some sort of reaction out of out of everyone. Um, so for me, that was the real challenge. And I'm not at all convinced in two weeks that I managed to get to grips with that challenge because I, I, I didn't have a lot of of time to run different sessions but looking forward i think that's an issue that needs to be explored more i think by academics probably also in conjunction with students and uh, student support groups things like staff student liaison committees at different universities asking how do students use these and are there ways in which we can make them uh, more usefully interactive um, and, and encourage more participation that that's that's what sort of leapt out at me i don't know what uh, you two have felt pete i think you've just been basically recording lectures online rather than doing the interactive classes is, is that right yeah i mean i was fortunate in the sense that when the lockdown actually happened when, when it when it came into place most of my teaching was finished i literally had a couple of lectures left to give and i was able to record them online and and send out the pre-recorded lectures and then I just said to students look if you have any questions you can either we can arrange a phone call or we can arrange a zoom chat or a Microsoft Teams chat or just an email or whatever whatever you want to do whatever suits you best so I was fortunate in the sense I didn't have to do much online teaching my kind of experience of all uh, in all of this is, is really come from the concerns that students are now facing uh, and also staff are facing actually in relation to um, how we're going to manage and how they are going to manage online examinations. Uh, and as you said, Tom, you know, what might happen next year when it comes to 
the provision of teaching in the next academic year. And that's that's where I'm kind of at at the moment. I think what's what's worth saying, first of all, is, is that, you know, applications like Skype and Zoom and Microsoft Teams have enabled us to continue working. I wouldn't say seamlessly, but we've been able to work um, uh, and carry on, you know, offering offering our service, I guess, um, in a way which, you know, even a few years ago, we couldn't have imagined. I think if this would have happened, you know, even probably five years ago, it would have been very, very different. Ten years ago, I think would have been in a in a in a in a in a far far worse situation, um, because at least we have been able to continue to do something. Um, I actually read on the news this morning, and this is just 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 as an aside, the, the person who founded Zoom, um, his value has increased to seven point four billion dollars in the last couple of weeks because of the use of Zoom and the fact that share price has just gone through the roof because of course everybody's using it at the moment. Um, but going back to students, I think the you know the, the the concerns that we have for them are you know when it comes to doing things like take home examinations, it's the time they're going to spend on the exams. Um, we're concerned about the fact that they're going to have a lot of exams grouped together potentially. Um, we're obviously concerned about the stress it's going to put them under um, because we, we, you know we, we worry that rather than spending two hours on an examination, they may decide to take a lot longer because they have 23 hours in which to do it. Um, all of those kind of problems, obviously plagiarism could be an issue as well, um, but there are also very other very practical problems. So, you know, for instance, I've got students who've come to me and said, look, I live, I'm now back at home. I live in a small, small house with three other siblings. Um, we're all under lockdown. I have nowhere to go and study. I have nowhere to go and do the exam. Um, you know, I don't have a quiet place that I can go to and spend a couple of hours on this examination. I've got to do it in my bedroom where my, my brother or my sister, might, my younger brother or sister might come in. You know, it's those kind of things which I think we have to be aware of as academics and aware of when we're grading the scripts as well, because they're going to be under other pressures that would never, ever even enter our minds in a normal exam situation and they're the concerns i have for them and also the concerns that they're you know they're, they're sharing with me i think from an academics perspective you know certainly talking to colleagues from a kind of a personal perspective we're obviously concerned about the implications it's going to have on us in terms of online marking turnaround times the workload increase that that will probably present to us uh, and then obviously going forward into the next academic year what that's going to mean for our teaching and the way we teach and our style of teaching. So like you were saying, Tom, you know, one of the things I think is great about being in, a, in a, an actual physical lecture or seminar or tutorial setting is the fact that you can have, you know, you can have these these very natural organic conversations with your students. I don't know if that will work quite the same, even using things like Microsoft Teams and or Zoom or Skype or whatever whatever facility you use, I'm not really sure if the same thing will happen. And that's that's my concern. But I think it's a case of we will see. We'll have to wait and see how this all pans out and how these things develop. And I'm sure as we as we learn more and we adapt more to using these um these these particular technologies, um things will improve, but we'll see. Indeed we will. Well we're out of time. Thank you both very much for joining me uh, today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a, a, a great conversation. Really enjoyed it.
Thank you for listening to the Media Law Podcast. We'll be back as often as we're able during this pandemic. But until we are, from all of us here, stay safe, take care, see you soon.